Do you have more pictures of your goats than yourself on your phone? Does your vacation time get spent attending goat shows? Can you have a conversation without bringing up dairy goats? Neither can we. So join us as we talk to the country's best breeders, judges, appraisers, and industry experts about all things dairy goats. We are John Kane and Danielle Caroli. Welcome to Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. This episode of Ringside is brought to you by GreatGoatBBQ.com. Are you tired of the same old boring meal routine? Head over to GreatGoatBBQ.com to check out their seasonings and barbecue sauces. The very popular rooster dust is a versatile, all-purpose seasoning, great on everything from poultry, pork, and beef, and everything in between. Since it's the holidays, you should check out their website and make an order for that picky person that likes the taste of good food. So head on over to GreyGoatBBQ.com and pick something out for that special person. And hey, for all our ringside listeners, take 10% off at GreyGoatBBQ.com with the code RINGSIDE10. Get yours while supplies last. Thank you to the Grey Goat for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Now on to the show. What's up, everyone, and welcome to Ringside. I'm John, and I'm joined by probably the person that's in the same boat as me needing a boat to get to their barn, Danielle Caroli. How are you? Uh, it's every it's wet and wild over here. It's just a lot of rain. <laughs> How are you? It's definitely mud season, and I hate it, but... I guess it's not snow, so that's good. I don't know. It's at the point of year where the mud is miserable, but would snow be more miserable? I don't know. I mean, I'm definitely not looking forward to shoveling snow, so I'll keep the rain. Uh, but yeah, it's it's wet and mucky out here. Uh, I haven't fallen yet, so it's not too mucky. Uh, but yeah, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to uh, the freeze and spring. Really? Oh boy, you're a little ambitious there. It's going to be a late spring as far as kidding season goes, considering I just had a doe uh, recycle on Thanksgiving and was had a date with the buck for the third time, so that's always fun. Oh yeah, yeah. And then you you get mad at that doe and post her online that you're probably going to sell her in the spring after she kids and everybody loses their minds and you get like 50 messages, so that's cool. Yes, and you get a podcast co-host who goes, really, you, you're doing that on the day where I can't talk you off a ledge? <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, it, when when you've had enough, you've had enough. Most likely she won't be sold. Everybody calm down, you know. I mean, two-year-old first freshener this year that, that finished, everybody's like, oh my gosh, she's amazing. So um, I got to kind of keep that perspective, I guess. Yes, 100%. Uh, anything else new and exciting in your barn or are you in cruise control as well? We are in cruise control. I am in the process of drying off my does. So I just have to dry treat them and I'm going to be doing that. If not tonight, probably tomorrow night. And then we'll be pulling blood, confirming pregnancies and really just letting uh, cruise control, drive the car, you know, cause that's how that works. Right. Autopilot, um, for a couple of months. Well, I guess we can move into some quick ad good news. Uh, really not much going on besides, Hey, top 10 
came out. So congratulations to everybody that had their does meet the list. Um, it's really cool to see some familiar names on there of not only animals, but breeders. So congratulations, everybody. Yes, congratulations. It definitely takes a lot of hard work and motivation and ambition to keep those does milking and then also putting out all those impressive numbers. So our hats are off to everyone there. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I'm going to cut the chit chat right there, Danielle, because we have an exciting guest this week, don't we? We do. You want to introduce her? Sure. This week, we are once again joined by Trinity Malmanis of Goat San Dairy Goats. Trinity is an amazing breeder that knows how to breed for type and confirmation. So much so, she is the chair of the type committee. She gave a presentation at the 2022 Adgan National Convention in Syracuse, where she talked about finding the right type. Today, we'll be discussing the Adga scorecard and ways to get the type you need in your herd. Welcome back to the show, Trinity Melmanis. Thanks. Super excited to be here, really. I enjoyed last time a lot, so I was really thankful to have you guys invite me back. Oh, our pleasure. Uh, your last episode went bonkers for us, and... We enjoy talking to you. You're really fun to talk goats with. Yeah, same to you. I love to talk goats. Who doesn't love to talk goats? <laughs> exactly. To start out, for those who are unfamiliar, what does type mean in relationship to dairy goats? Well, when we talk about type, um, you know, we really are talking about what kind of confirmation makes up um, you know, a valuable or a um, productive, I guess is a better word, dairy goat. And so type is, um, you know, the general appearance and the structure of the animal, the structure of the mammary system, all those attributes. Basically, the scorecard is like the basis of our type program. And so, um, you know, the scorecard is supposed to um describe a goat that functions at a high level. And of course, dairy goats are milk goats. So we're talking about producing, you know, a significant volume of milk over their lactation. And mm -hmm. then, um, you know, we want them to last for a long time too. And so the scorecard kind of, hopefully, you know, if we maintain it and, you know, keep track of what's going on in the world and update it, that the scorecard describes that kind of goat. John mentioned that you were the chair of the type committee, and obviously the type committee is focusing on goat type, but what exactly is the role of the type committee? What is your tasks each year when you're putting out your committee reports? Yeah, and so the type committee, um, you know, just basically every year we get to, or we don't get together, obviously, but we talk about and um, look at the scorecard and our evaluation of defects and those parts of the guidebook that describe um, dairy goat type. We look at that each year and we think, you know, are we happy with it? Do based on our observations and our experiences in changing times, do we need to update it? Um, you know, making sure that when you look at our scorecard, you know, you're still, you know, because you you are always learning things about dairy goats. And so over the years, you know, um, maybe we change our opinion on certain traits. And so making sure that the scorecard and, you know, how you we're evaluating our animals stays up to date and um, 
and relevant in the dairy goat world um, is that's kind of the role of the type committee um, to do that. And then we also coordinate pretty closely with linear appraisal because linear appraisal is our type, one of our type programs that and shows. And so um, we do coordinate a lot with linear appraisal to make sure that, you know, our two programs, the scorecard and linear appraisal, you know, are matching each other and that we're staying um, kind of in the same, you know, we're promoting the same kind of things. I can only imagine that those conversations on that committee can get just so interesting as you're trying to make changes. Um, and obviously you're not making huge changes, but trying to balance the scorecard as a whole, I'm sure those conversations are are amazing to just yeah. watch. Well, you know, they're interesting conversations and you know, there's a, I think, my committee last year had um, 10 or 12 people on it. And, you know, I tried to get a, you know, breadth of knowledge on the committee, people who have been around for a long time, people who are, you know, younger and up and coming in, in terms of, you know, being <clears throat> impactful in the goat world. And so you have a lot of different perspectives and um, it's very, you're right. It's very interesting to, you know, see all the sides and then figure out where we can, kind of come together and, um, you know, do what's best for, you know, our animals and for the, you know, type programs. For like the actual dairy goat side here, and we'll move from the committee, uh, where mm -hmm. does type have the most impact on our ability to successfully manage dairy goats? Hmm. I mean, so like I said before, you know, type and the scorecard. And, you know, when we talk about type, it's really the scorecard, right? So the scorecard just is, you know, describes what type of goat we're looking for. And so when we look at the scorecard, you know, if people as breeders can, um, you know, use that as a guideline for, you know, how they are breeding their animals and try to maintain those characteristics that we, that are described as positive or necessary for, you know, longevity and productivity, then, um, you know, hopefully everybody is getting animals in their barn that, you know, are easily managed at a high productive level for a long period of life. And, you know, I think that's, should be the ultimate goal of, all dairy goat breeders is that, you know, we're looking for, um, you know, those animals that can, um, you know, maintain their functionality um, for a long period of time within each lactation and for a long period of time over their life. Because if you look at goats from more of a commercial aspect, where if you were selling their milk or, um, you know, needing to get certain volumes of, of milk, um, it's, you know, it's much cheaper to milk a goat for say five to seven years than it is to have to, to milk them for only three years and then have to re-raise a new kid to milk for the next three years after that, if you get my drift. So oh, I get when that we're looking at, sure. yeah, when you're looking at type, you know, when we're really, you know, and we, you know, we don't have a ton of commercial producers that participate in ADGA per se, but you know, when you think about dairy goats and their ultimate function and, you know, what they're ultimately for, it's for milk. And so, um, you know, trying to think on that level 
you know, as breeders is that, you know, how can we get these animals to be the most cost effective and uh, management friendly over a long period of time? No, I think that's great. And I forget what the exact number is in the dairy cow world, but I do think this is a difference that in terms of dairy cows and dairy goats, it is so common in that dairy cow industry to have a cow freshen twice. I think it's like 2.3 is the average level of lactations that a cow in a commercial herd will have for that herd before she is moved out because economically for them, it's cheaper to bring a replacement heifer. She's going to have more milk. There's all these different things, the ability to breed back. But in dairy goats, it is stressed so extensively, that longevity of wanting a doe who's going to be productive and functional at five, 10 years, you know, five or even 10 years old. Yeah, and I do. And, you know, I think, you know, different from dairy cows, you know, because dairy cows, they give such a higher volume of milk that, um, you know, they can give what they need for a lifetime in a shorter period of time. But when you, and then when you look at dairy goats, you know, if you're looking at only a two or three lactation animal, they're probably, you know, being totally, you know, honest about dairies, they're probably only giving maybe like four or 5,000 pounds in those two or, or those three or four lactations, probably only like 3,000 pounds in two lactations for some animals. So, um, you know, longevity is something that we've tried to stress as dairy goats, um, you know, for some time. I will say since we, since Daniel brought up, you know, dairy cattle, I've noticed that, you know, the last 10 years, it was bigger is better. The biggest Holstein you can get tallest, widest, that's what they were breeding for. And they realized that the longevity wasn't there, uh, even for the short amount of time that they have cows in the parlor, uh, for each cow, uh, they've scaled that back and they're really starting to go, go back to kind of the nineties, eighties, even late eighties look of a dairy cow, um, and, and really striving for balance, um, which we will talk about extremes here today. But first I want to kind of touch on, do you think the scorecard is an underutilized tool by breeders and, and how can it be a benefit for them? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I underutilized, I think could be a good term for it because I do think that the scorecard is underutilized because it's kind of um, more seen as the main categories and main traits and then how much, how many points they're worth. But if you actually go through and read the scorecard and read the words that are accompanying each of those point values and each of those traits. It really describes the kind of animal that we're looking for. And um, when I was giving this, my type conference at convention this year, um, you know, looking at all of the, I highlighted like key words in all of the descriptions. Like when you talk about the mammary system, it mentions capacity like seven times in the description, capacity, capacity, capacity in front of the leg, capacity behind the leg, overall capacity, capacity up into the escutcheon. It really talks about volume of mammary system a lot. And 
Um, you know, in my opinion, that's one thing that, you know, maybe we're not seeing as much um, realization. We hear judges or people or evaluators talk a lot about like, well, the structure of the mammary system, you know, oh, it's okay that her udder is a little bit small because it's so beautifully structured. But when you actually read the scorecard, you know, it talks a lot about capacity and, and that that's like a valuable, really, um, useful term within the, the scorecard and that maybe we don't focus on it as much. And so I think that breeders could um, utilize the scorecard better by really reading what the terms mean and like what each category, the descriptions in it, because it really can tell you a lot about the things that we're looking for. And instead of just seeing it more as like point values and traits. I, I think that that's a great way to put it. I feel like a lot of people um, kind of just look at certain things and don't look at the whole scorecard itself uh, for balance. Obviously, in the in your introduction today, I, I mentioned that uh, you have amazing goats. You're an awesome breeder, and you know how to breed for typing confirmation. So, what does finding the right type mean for you? Well, thank you for one. And, um, you know, I, there are plenty of amazing goats in the world and amazing breeders and, uh, you know, no goats perfect. I do know that. And there's always room to improve and breed better goats. Um, you know, for me, and this is, this is an interesting concept for me is because, you know, what is the right type, right? Like we say that scorecard describes it, but, also for each individual herd owner, you know, maybe their types are a little bit different and can you have different types and still maintain functionality and productivity? Sure you can. There's slight differences everywhere. And, you know, that's what's fun about breeding is, is that, you know, we're all breeding for the same thing, but we all have our own personal preferences and, um, you know, things that we tolerate or things that we don't tolerate because there's no perfect goat. And so for me, finding the right type is finding, um, you know, the type of animal that um, works for my management style. And um, and when I mean works for a management style, for anybody's management style, means that however you house, keep, feed, work with your animals, that they are able to, um, you know, maintain their functionality um, through that management and that they're able to, um, you know, do what, do what you need them to do for you. So like, what is your end goal? Are you making, you know, are you making cheese and yogurt and doing products or, you know, what, what is your end goal? And so finding the right type, I think is really individual for everyone. For me, it's finding, you know, I'm trying to find some balance between, um, you know, keeping my animals really productive, but maintaining, you know, a really correct, um, stylish animal at the same time. Kind of touching on what works for you. And obviously this isn't a type example, but I think it's a really good kind of story to bring up. And in that idea of what works for, for you is when you start talking goats with people and even local breeders, um, you start probably comparing nutrition and some people, I mean, I remember a conversation I had with somebody and their, what they feed their goats hay wise and the, how their goats look on that hay 
they're like they swear by more of a first cut, very mm-hmm. stemmy, almost let's call it trash hay. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, something that a horse wouldn't get. I mean, we're kind of in horse country, so a lot of people when they're buying hay look for that horse hay around us. But I laugh because I see the hay they feed. And I go, oh, my girls would turn up their noses at that hay. But that breeder over all these years has a beautiful herd of goats that are functional. They're winning at shows. They're excelling in linear appraisal. All of these things, they look great, but it works for them and their management. But I also know it wouldn't work for mine. So there is such a thing of trying to make sure that your type works for you. I think of other like areas of the country where you go and you see the soil is different. And so the feet are a little different. So maybe you allow the feet to be a little bit more widespread because they're dealing with sandy soils. Um, different things like that. That idea that you have to make it work for you is so important, I think. Yeah. And you know, what's really interesting is that there's like so many examples of that. When you think about like those those people that feed the hay that you were talking about, like over the years, they've bred animals that manage under that hay. Whereas you say you like to feed, you know, third, fourth cutting soft alfalfa. So your animals have been managed to thrive under those conditions. And then, you know, there, there was a Always, has always been this talk about like um, West Coast having really big goats compared to maybe some of the other animals on the East Coast. But the fact of the matter is that on the West Coast, we have access to better alfalfa and then we don't have severe winters. And so our animals, we can grow big framed animals and they maintain themselves just fine. You take one of those big framed animals that's used to high quality alfalfa and you take them back to New England area and they have to live in a barn for four months out of the year and they only have access to, you know, grass hay and alfalfa pellets and they're not going to survive the same. And so, you know, adapting your, your type and your style, or if you go down South into the Florida region, you have to breed parasite resistant animals, or you're just going to be fighting parasites all the time. And so again, when you're breeding your animals, a lot of factors go into what works for you. No, exactly. And those are great points for, we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast. We've shared it on our Facebook page as well. And I'm sure everyone who's exhibited a dairy goat in 2022 has been aware of it, but There was a scorecard change in 2021, and in that change, stature was removed and more emphasis was placed on the rump structure, and back and rump became two separate subcategories of general appearance. Kind of looking at a crystal ball or as the type committee and what that change meant, how do you think this will influence breeding programs and then animal confirmation going forward? You know, it's kind of hard to crystal ball it, but, you know, I think that the intent, um, you know, the intent of the change was that, um, not to say that we want to breed smaller goats, right? So taking away stature, a lot of people was like, oh, well, now they want to breed smaller goats. Nobody needs to breed smaller goats, but just taking the emphasis off of, um, off of height and you know and that's what and and the other thing is is that you know if you go back and look at stature 
The description of stature when it was in the scorecard, the exact description is taller at the withers than at the hips with a long bone pattern throughout. That is the exact description that was under stature. Let me ask you guys this. Does it say anywhere in there that they need to be tall? Nope. Certainly does not. It doesn't say anywhere that they need to be tall. It just says they need to be taller at the withers than they are at the hips with a long bone pattern. And I, in one of my other presentations last year, I put up four or five animals that, um, in my opinion, fit the description of stature. And I put them up there and everyone agreed with me. Oh, yeah. They all are taller at the withers than they are at the hips and their long bone pattern throughout. Well, the linear scores on those goats for stature ranged from 47 to 16 in terms of how tall they actually were. And so like a 16 is like uh, 27 inches and a 47 is um, a 47 is almost 35 inches. And so, you know, trying to, realized that when they had stature in the scorecard, the intent of it wasn't to talk about height. It was to talk about the essence and presence of the animal as they presented themselves. Um, and so going back to your point, sorry, I got a little sidetracked, but you know, how, how is it going to impact, you know, breeders? And, you know, I just hope that people don't think that we're asking them to breed smaller goats. We're just simply saying that height isn't really a factor in the animal's overall good type. Um, you know, obviously we have Nigerian dwarves where they have to stay within a certain height range, but when you're just talking even within that height range, like there's no benefit to bigger and there's no benefit to smaller really, you know, it's really about breeding a more balanced goat. And then when you look at the rump and we've really been, and so, you know, you want to de-emphasize something, but then thinking, okay, well, what do we want to emphasize or increase the emphasis on? And, you know, especially with, um, you know, our Nigerian breeders, they are one of the newest breeds started in 2005. And, you know, as a breed, they have issues with their rump structure. Nubians have issues with their rump structure. And then overall, rump structure is so important for accommodation to mammary system and accommodation of, um, you know, capacity and productivity and ease of birthing and overall style when you look at the animal walking around the ring. And so we said, hey, let's try to emphasize rump. And, you know, my hope is not that people will de-emphasize stature and height. It's that they'll just remember that to focus on things such as rump, because that's a more um, functional trait that really can affect whether an animal lives for a long time and milks at a high level. That didn't really answer your question about where I think breeding is going to go. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it kind of goes back to why those changes existed. And so that was kind of the flip side of that. Um, point. So I totally, um, I totally get it. And I think, sorry, John, as I stole that from you, but um, <laughs> I, I think it's one of those things that when you put that emphasis, even, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, if you look at 2021 or like when they, it changed over, you're talking a two point change that kind of moved things around. So it's not, you know, that's, of the whole entire scorecard. But when you start allowing a little bit more focus on rump, you're 
able to say, okay, this doe isn't wide enough in that rump. And maybe then that breeder goes back and focuses to breed to something that is a little wider. So then your kidding is that much easier because you can get a hand into that doe and you can pull out the kid and it's a seven pound kid and you can easily deliver it. So then you're not dealing with a lot of stress from kidding on the doe, stress on yourselves, you know, the birth, it just kind of makes your kidding season maybe that much easier because you're not dealing with as much stress and then it just allows for more. And that's just even a minor example of what can happen when you start looking at the animal more with, with a focus on that back and rump more than, all right, as you kind of said, we go to stature. Well, we think stature means height. What is height going to get us in the barn except needing to build longer milking stands because this dough just won't fit on it anymore or you know, having exactly. these bucks that are going when they're being appraised 50 as a two-year-old. It just, there's, is there really merit in it versus is there merit in that um, that rump structure. Right. And I think it goes, and it just goes back to what is a more functional trait, you know, what is going to be affecting their function and rump is a significantly more functional trait than stature. And, um, and then the other thing is, is that, you know, separating out rump from back, um, you know, when people are evaluating animals, it really makes them use the whole, trait of rump because when rump was lumped in with back, we tended to st- talk about just how level is it? How level mm-hmm. is it, you know, yes. from hips to pins? How level is it from hips to pins? Because it was part of this bigger trait and you could talk about their chine and their loin and their levelness of their rump. Well, now we have to talk about rump as its own trait and you can't just say levelness over and over and over again. And so as you're, as an evaluator, you know, hopefully we can start talking about width and, um, you know, uniformity and height of the thurls and, um, you know, width of pins and smoothness of blending at the, you know, at the tail head and all of, all of the functional traits of rub, not just how level is it from the side, side view. Yeah. Yeah. I I think people got stuck in a one dimensional side profile view, mostly pictures from Facebook or websites. Um, And then the change to the scorecard really made it a more three dimensional thing that it should be. Um, I, I, I love the changes that were made there. I mean, especially stature as an Oberhasley breeder. Um, people tend to forget that they're a medium sized breed and they're supposed to be. Um, and you know, I've got a really small two year old first freshener this last show season that is as balanced as can be, but I was like, I was apprehensive about showing her. I was like, Hey, she's, well, and is it, and is it not fresh? And is it not frustrating to be in a best in show lineup and to have them talk about how the Sonnen is taller and longer than your Oberhasli? Well, oh, yeah. it drives Duh. me nuts. You know? And so, nuts. and because we have had this like hyper focus on how tall and long they are, the most commonly used reasons in any show ring are she's taller and longer She's more level. She has a higher, wider rear rudder. I mm-hmm. mean, people just go ape about those three traits. And, you know, I think just making changes and talking about it like we are here can really help people rescale and relook and be like, oh, yeah, there's lots of traits to focus on, not just a few. 
Oh, and speaking of the traits, what a wonderful transition. Uh, in, <laughs> in finding the right type, we are given the scorecard to assist us. But how do we as breeders take the information and apply it? This is where I need all my pictures. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I think when you look at the scorecard, and again, if you read the descriptions within the scorecard, um, it really tells you all of the things you need to know. And it's important, especially for new people, like to know all the body parts and stuff, because it uses kind of more complex language than your basic beginner might know. But for those of us that are breeding, you know, have been breeding a long time, I always go back and read it and, um, you know, talk about, you know, if you just go through it, describe the, it describes goats perfectly. Um, anyways, I've lost your question now. What was the question? <laughs> well, you did answer it, but okay. <laughs> uh, but how do they take the the information of the scorecard and try to apply it within their whole herd? Right, got that. So <laughs> the way and the way that I always look at it when I'm looking at a goat. So if you're going to go into your barn and try to use the scorecard to evaluate your animals. Um, I always try to read the descriptions and then in my presentation that I did, you guys probably saw that I use like circles and triangles oh, yeah. and to overlay on the goat. And if you think about looking at a goat and trying to, instead of trying like front end assembly, there's so many moving parts and so much craziness going on that it's hard to, you know, where is the problem? You know, what am I actually looking at? Because you've got the shoulder blades and the front legs and the chest and the point of shoulder and the point of elbow. And so when you read the description of front end assembly, you can almost imagine the shapes that go along. So when I look at a goat from the side, I want, you know, my straight down line from the withers down through the front leg. And it talks about that. And um, you want the chest floor to be flat to the ground. And so if you think about it all in shapes where you have parallelograms or triangles and you can overlay those shapes onto your goats, it's an easier way to evaluate animals. And it's, it's very difficult to describe it without visuals. Um, but, you know, when you look at like wedge shapes. So when you look at your goat from the side and you look at her from the withers back through the flank and the barrel, you know, does she have a more rectangular shape or does she have a more triangular shape? And without having to actually identify the points in the body, you can say, oh yes, the overall essence is that she's triangular shaped. And that's what we talk about when we talk about depth to the rear barrel and um, depth in the flank and, um, you know, that dairy wedge shape. Whereas if she's a more, tri uh, you know, rectangular shape, you can say, oh, well, that's not quite as ideal as I would have hoped to. And so I try to think about what shape each trait might present as, and then like overlay it onto the goats. But again, like I said, it's very hard to describe without actually showing visuals. Yeah, we're going to have to do a YouTube video someday. You know that, right? <laughs> well, you well and it's hard. A lot of people have asked me for my visuals, but without me to sit there and describe what the visual means, it's, mm -hmm. um, I feel, I always feel like tentative about just 
throwing a bunch of triangles at a person and saying, here, this is, this is going to help you. <laughs> right. And everybody's like, shoot, I wasn't really paying attention in, uh, in, in that math class and in geometry, in, in geometry. Yeah. When I was, when my teacher was saying it'll be useful later on in life, I really didn't think it would apply to dairy goats. <laughs> well, totally does. Totally does. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it reminds me of the video that's out there on the interwebs of um, a scorer for dairy cows. I think it's a jersey he's got uh, mm -hmm. where he grabs he grabs some twine mm -hmm. and he breaks down how everything is balanced. Um, front end, you know, the cannon bone up and you know, then he goes up to the head and does the width of the head to the length of the jaw and all this. And, and it's amazing how everything kind of correlates and go and he goes by bits and pieces of of the cow. Well, we're going to go bits and pieces by the goat here and we're going to continue to break it down by section. I mean, we've already you've already touched on front end assembly, but was there anything else you wanted to touch on that before we move on to a different category? Um no, you know, I just front end assembly is so um there's so many moving parts and, you know, I think it's important for people to remember that in front end, there's no bony attachments in front end assemblies. Mm -hmm. There's no joints really. It's all just held up there by tendons and ligaments and muscle. And, um, and so, you know, I always just think of that as an interesting concept because it means when you see differences in the front end, it's really about the quality, like muscles are, you have too many pulling up and not enough pulling down or too many pulling out and not enough pulling in. And so, um, you know, you talked about balance. And so not only is it balance in visual, like the outside visual, but the front end really is about balance inside and making sure that, you know, all of the parts are um, complementing each other um, in the front end. No, that's a great point. And I think back to some of my judges training workshop work and you always kind there's always somebody that says, I don't like this animal's front end or the front end is what I would like to improve. Kind of when you're just looking at that animal quickly. And if you were to say, oh, I don't, the back is the area. It's usually a lot easier to say, okay, the back is the area of that. I would like to improve on this goat probably in her chine, but you look at that front end first and you say, okay, there's something wrong with that front end. And it usually takes a little bit longer to figure out what is kind of the cause and effect in that front yes. end. Is it that her toes, her front, her toes are kind of pointing out and that's causing a rotation that's causing her to move weird. Or is it that she's loose at that point of elbow? There's so much more mechanically. I feel that goes into that front end that causes issues or, you know, an animal to need improvement in that front end. So when you're looking at it, you always have to take a little bit longer to identify what the cause is that is throwing off that front end. Absolutely. And you know, you, you mentioned something that I talk about all of the time, which is cause and effect, right? Mm -hmm. And so whenever you're looking at any part of an animal and most people can look at an animal and even if they're not that knowledgeable, they can say, wow, that just doesn't seem right. You know, that just seems off, um, not ideal. And so whenever you look at a fault in an animal, I always try 
try to find, okay, so here's the fault, but where did it come from? Because most of the time it comes from some other deficiency or some, not some other deficiency, but what is the specific deficiency? And like talking about front end, front end has a huge cause and effect thing. And so a lot of people, if you get a dippy chine, you see a dippy chine, they are going to criticize the chine because that's what it looks like is bad. But most of the time, dippy chines come with front legs that are too far forward, shallow mm-hmm. chest floors, prominent points of shoulders, where the legs, you know, are set too far forward. And as you set the legs too far forward, they lose, you know, the back loses its support mechanism, which is the front legs being under the shoulder. And so then they become dippy in the chine. And so whenever you're looking at any traits, you know, when you see the fault, Make sure you can try to figure out where the fault's coming from because there are true dippy chines also where the shoulder will be fine and then the chine is dippy. But is it a dippy chine because of the back or is it a dippy chine because of the shoulder? And so cause and effect is a huge thing when you're evaluating um, animals and looking at type is where did where did the problem originate from? Because it isn't always the actual trait you're looking at. Yeah, I agree with that so much. First of all, front ends um, are a little bit difficult for me to pinpoint the the effect and, and what is causing that why. Um, I mean, Danielle, you you can totally agree with me on this because how many times have I had you uh, help me look at an animal and I'm like, something's off with the front end and we had to pull it out and I'd walk it and then you'd walk it and we kind of correlated for one of them. It was because she's just kind of big like me or um, and then, <laughs> have had too much rain and yeah but we won't talk about that one <laughs> and then you know another one's buck and rut that just happens you know he just kind of looks a little wonky right now because he's in rut uh hopefully but yeah it, it always one tip i will give our listeners is if you are trying to evaluate your animals have somebody else walk that dang animal so you can see what it looks like from the judges or whoever's perspective uh, it's really hard to evaluate an animal as you're looking down at them when you're walking them. Yeah. And evaluating animals on the move is so necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, it's great to see your goat in the milk stand every day or to, you know, see it in the show ring when it's nice and pretty and posed or in a picture, but you're never going to really find out the true structure of an animal until you see it move and function. For sure. And I think that's why you see a lot of uh, the boar goat or meat goat people, uh, when they post anything about, say, a buck or a weather or a doe that they're uh, going to have in some huge sale, uh, it's always a video of them driving that animal, right? It's never mm-hmm. that just it, they'll have pictures of them, you know, stacked for you know pretty goodness sake, but they also have videos correlating with that. At least the good breeders, uh, where you see that animal on the move, and I think that's really important. Important. Um, maybe, you know, dairy goat people should kind of take that. Uh, yeah. And I mean, with them. the, with like modern technology and stuff, gosh, how easy is it to, you know, do a Snapchat video, save it and send it to someone. And, um, you know, I always warn people against purchasing animals based solely on pictures alone, because I know I can make my goats look real nice in pictures <laughs> than they actually are. <laughs> Samesies. Uh, <laughs> so let, let's continue to break it down, um, and let's yeah. let's go with with the head and breed characteristics. 
Yeah. And, you know, head and you talked about the, um, the cow guy who does the proportions with the string. Yeah. And you guys probably saw on my slides, I have the same thing for dairy goats and, you know, your proportions and balance really starts up in the head. And, um, you know, for the most part, I would say 95% of the time, when you look at a goat's head, you're probably going to have the same kind of body behind the head. And so if you have a really strong wide head, you're probably going to have a really strong wide goat. If you have a very narrow long head, you're probably going to have a pretty narrow long goat. Not all the time, but the majority of the time, those two things really correlate. You don't often have like a really pinched nose and narrow head on like a really framey wide body. They just don't go together. And so when you look at the head, you know, head is head and breed characteristics. And so those are two things, the head and then the breed characteristics, right? And so when you're looking just at the head, which is the functional part of the goat, because, you know, obviously the type of nose they have, the type of ears they have doesn't really say that much about how they function. Um, so when you look at the actual head, you know, you want to see them pretty balanced in terms of how wide they are between their eyes, how long they are from eye to the end of the nose, and then how deep they are um, under the eye. And you want all of those things to kind of be in proportion, um, you know, because if you have a proportional head, as you take your proportions back through the rest of the goat, you're probably going to be, have similar proportions. Like I mentioned, if you have, you know, a goat that's real narrow between the eyes and then she has that really long nose and La Mancha's are just my, and I have lines of La Mancha's that are like this. They are, they're like a little narrow between the eyes and then really long nose. Well, you end up with a really long body kind of narrow goat behind. And so when you're looking at the head, you know, thinking not just do they have the correct ears and nose for the breed, but do they have a functional head that, um, you know, brings balance to the rest of the animal. Right. And they also have to be smooth and blended well in appearance. You know, I've got a doe that her nickname's Kermit the Frog because <laughs> she's got these really buggy eyes. I don't know where they came from. Um <laughs> But it's just like the clunkiest head. And when she got appraised and, you know, she her head scored what it did. I was like, well, you know, <laughs> doesn't Although, surprise you me. Know, talking about, I mean, they're supposed to have sculpting around their eye and they're supposed to have a lot of expression in their eye. And Oberhosleys especially, you know, are are the breed standard, you know, calls for a very expressive head. And so sometimes you do get those ones that people like to call buggy eye. But is it really that bad of a thing? I don't know. It's, I'll send you a picture <laughs> later. It's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> that is where the scorecard goes out the wind, window and it's all about the visuals of like, is she pleasing to the eye just in general <laughs> versus <laughs> the functionality and what's in the scorecard? Does she right, look right. uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know which Joe you're talking about, John, but. Oh, it's Jen. Oh, okay. <laughs> My old girl. My old girl, yeah. Oh, I've um, seen that goat. She's got a beautiful <laughs> overhustly head. Oh, no. She's got the Nubian type eyes set on a you big old... Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I mean, I will I give you that we made it 46 minutes in here, but like, really? We just had to make some shots at the over or at the Nubians today? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just how it goes down sometimes, Danielle. <laughs> Gosh. All right. Well, 
back. Focus, focus. <laughs> yeah, focus. Let's go to back now. Let's bring it back to back. Bring it back to back. Yeah. Um, you know, and so before we get any farther in the traits, I just want to talk about the proportions thing because you're going to, for all the rest of the traits, it's all about proportion. And so, you know, and I hope that we can, maybe I'll make a video, a YouTube video sometime here when I have no time. But um, you, you can go and do, and you can Google the dairy cow one. And it's a, like you said, I think it's a Jersey, but just do Google like dairy cow proportions examples or video or something. Anyway, so when you look at an animal, a goat from the side and you start looking at proportions and you'll hear me talk a lot about proportions. So if you start, I usually start on the front leg. So if you go from the front the front hoof up to the knee and then the knee to the point of elbow and then the point of elbow to the point of shoulder, point of shoulder to the top of the wither, the top of the wither to the end of the chine, the end of the chine to the hips, the hips down to the pins, the pins over to the stifle or flank and then the flank to the hock and then the hock to the ground. All of those distance sh distances should be somewhat proportional to each other. And generally, when you find one of those distances that is very different from the other distances, you're going to have an issue like a roached back or a dippy chine or, um, you know, a goat that's low in the front because her cannons are real short or whatever the things are. And so... Everybody pause, go back, listen to that again. Pause, go back and listen to that again. It'll tell you a lot. Um, so when looking at the back, you want the back to be long and straight. Straight meaning level from the side. And you want the distance of the chine, which is from the wither back to the last rib. You want that to be similar to the distance of your loin, which is from the last rib back to the hip juncture of the hips. And so you want those two distances to be pretty similar. And then the three-dimensional aspect of back is that when you stand over the top of the goat and you look at the back, you want there to be increasing width from the withers back to the juncture of the hips so that the width of the chine is slightly less than the width of the loin, which has increasing width. And you want them to be all be wide but you actually want there to be increasing width back so that it creates kind of a triangle shape. So when you look over the top of the goat, if your three points of your triangle were your two hips and your wither, that it would create a nice triangle with a nice strong base. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense to me. And I honestly want to try that so bad. I'm going to do that as soon as I have some days fresh because I want to try it with everything in correlation. Yeah. And you know, what's really fun to do um, is if you take pictures of your goats over the top, then you can actually like superimpose the triangles on them and you can see which ones have wider triangle bases and which ones have narrower triangle bases. And, you know, that tells you which ones are kind of wider in the back than they are than the other ones. And so um, I play around a lot with overlaying triangles on goats, as you saw. And um, so I always encourage people to just take some picture, you know, quit. You can just stand over them in the bar and take a picture and then lay those triangles on them and see where you end up. But so anyways, the back, don't forget that it's a, you know, three-dimensional, four-dimensional. Look at the back from all angles. Should be long, balanced, level, and wide to the loin.
Yeah, and and full in the crop. I feel like a lot of people uh, miss out on that part. They kind of overlook the crop and just look for the wide loin and and obviously wide hips. And, yeah. Very Although important. I will tell you that a lot of times the lack of fullness in the crops is a front end problem and not a back problem. Really? Yeah. And it, you know, again, the front end affects, so the front end affects most more things than anything else. The front end and the rump affect more things than anyone, anything else. And so you see the cause of the problem somewhere else. Like if you have low thoroughs and narrow thoroughs, the rear legs don't work right. And everyone's like, oh, bad rear legs. And I'm like, well, no, it's really because they have come off of a bad rump. And so again, cause and effect. Yeah. I mean, you can't start out a race spinning in the mud and think that you're going to win. You start out with the front end and then you can't expect to win a race by breaking down at the end. Just the way it goes. Now, we, we did talk about rump. Uh, was mm-hmm. there anything else that you think we should have we should add there? Well, of course, I have to talk about I don't talk about rumps without talking about my garage um, analogy. Yes. And, uh, you know, I got that. I have to give credit. I got that from John White and Eric Germain. I'm pretty sure it was John that first said it to me. But, um, you know, when you think about the rump, the rump is really the garage for your mammary system because the whole mammary system is suspended underneath of the rump. And um, so if you're thinking about cars and garages, if you have a garage for, you know, your Mini Cooper, you can have a pretty small garage and the Mini Cooper just goes right in. But we don't want Mini Cooper udders. We're looking for like F-350 udders, right? <laughs> and if you have your garage built for a Mini Cooper, you're probably going to demolish it by driving your F-350 into it. And, you know, so if you think about that as an analogy, you have to really focus on, you know, your garage structure in order to accommodate the kind of car that you're looking for. And so I always talk about that with rump. And if you think about like, um, the length of the rump, the flatness from thorough to thorough, because when it, the thoroughs, when you have flatness from thorough to thorough, it creates more of a flat roof. Whereas if the thoroughs are very low and the rump is more peaked, you're going to have less width and you won't, and you won't have as much width. And so the udder can't set up as high and the udder will brush the sides of your garage. And so really thinking about, you know, the shape that can accommodate the udder underneath of it is really the ideal rump that you want. And in my opinion, and, you know, I know we're going to wrap up with extreme talking about extremes, I think, but, you know, in terms of all the traits, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, the only trait that you can't get too high is rump width. I just think you can, the wider your rump is, the better. And, you know, people talk about like, oh, rear outer height should always be super high. Well, I have arguments for that. So in my opinion, rump width is the only trait that is like an extreme thing. Like get them wide, as wide as you can. And it's hard. Like the widest rump, dough rump I've ever measured is maybe eight and three quarter, maybe nine. But, you know, let's all breed for nine inch rumps. I like that. Yeah, I like that too. (laughs) 
Uh, now, you're talking about a garage, but you've got to have a good foundation for that garage to sit on, and that's the legs, pasterns, and feet. Mm-hmm. And um, so my next quest as type chair is to separate out legs, pasterns, and feet um, similarly to how we did rump and back because um, I believe that the importance of the legs far outweighs the importance of the feet. And um, because they're all lumped into one very large point category, I think sometimes we focus a lot on the feet and forget how important the legs are. And then if you think about in linear appraisal, um, you know, we evaluate the legs all individually, front legs and then rear legs. And then, um, you know, we talk about, we do evaluate the feet, but we don't really evaluate the pastern um, as much. And so I think that, um, you know, maybe in future work, you'll see those things separated out. I don't know. But in terms of their importance, front legs, real important. Um, you know, you want them to be, and we talked about the balance where, you know, similar distance from the knee to the ground as you have from the knee to the point of elbow. And that's what gives them the goats that elevated look, you know, the higher the withers than you are at the hips is when you have a nice balanced front leg. If you have short cannon bones, you tend to get a little bit low fronted and don't have like the um, style and ease of motion as you move around. And then I will tell you, though, that I'll, so front legs are hugely affected by the front end. Like you can't really evaluate the front end, the front legs without evaluating the front end, in my opinion, because a lot of times, for example, when you look at the front legs from the front, you want them to be straight towards you. And a lot of goats will have rotation outwards. We call it towing out, right? Everyone yep. thinks it's towing out. Well, there's actually two kinds of that. One is where the rotation is from the knee down. That's what true towing out is, but that, and that's the front legs fault, but most goats turn out in the front leg because they, it comes from the shoulder where they're very prominent and wide at the point of shoulder and then pinched at the point of elbow and it rotates the whole front leg outwards. And so remembering that when you're evaluating the front leg, you really got to look at the shoulder too and say, okay, well, are the things that I'm seeing in the front leg, the fault of the leg, or are they the fault of the shoulder? I agree. I, I want to touch on the pastern thing. I mean, if if you've seen any of my posts with my goats, I always mm-hmm. say, oh, look at the pasterns. I you know don't have to bury them in shavings, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, it's probably the Holstein guy in me where really the huge <laughs> focus growing up is locomotion for those cows. You know, they got to right. be able to get up and go feed. They got to get up and go drink and they got to get up and go to the parlor. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, if you have a bad pasturned cow, uh, it's probably not going to stick on the farm very long. Um, so you said that you don't really focus too much on that, but, um, what would you say is the ideal to look at, uh, you know, obviously you don't want them too long. Right. And so here's my, um, my spiel on, on pastern strength, um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously, ideally, you would have an animal that isn't broken in their pasterns. You know, I, I agree with that concept. I also don't feel that certain types of um, weak pasterns ever 
really affect the function of the animal. I milked at a dairy for 10 years and some of the Sonnens there were, had weak pasterns from the time they were yearling milkers and they milked 20,000 pounds in their lifetime and, you know, didn't ever really have a problem. Um, but so here's, but here's what I think about pasterns. There are two types of weak pastern. There are what I call compressed pasterns and they're what are called sprung pasterns. Compressed pastern is where the animal is weak in their pastern, but the dew cloth stays fairly well over the, over the hoof. And so um, it's more of a compression of the pastern, if you understand. Yeah. Whereas a sprung pastern is where the the joint hyperextends and then the dew claws go out beyond the back of the, the hoof. And it's really a hyperextension of the pastern joint rather than a compression of the pastern joint. Does that make sense? No, totally. And in my opinion, a compressed pastern, a pastern that is weak in being overly compressed, that never affects the function of the animal. I've never seen an animal not be able to do the biomechanics that they need to do from a compressed pastern issue. Sprung pasterns will cause issues because it causes all sorts of undue stress on the back legs and on the hoof structure as well. It, it pulls on the the tendon between the toes and then they get really spread toes and then they wear their heels funny because all the weight's on the back of the hoof. And so just recognizing that, you know, not all weak pasterns are created equal. Perfect. And that kind of brings me to like my follow-up on that. So with those sprung pasterns, you're tending to see more of a posty leg with that, correct? Versus the compressed pasterns. That's just kind of isolated to that foot area? Yes. Well, and and then I'm glad you brought that up because then I guess the conclusion of this whole um, this whole conversation, and again, you know, focusing more on, say, the rear pasterns because we all know that the rear pasterns go worse before the front pasterns. Can we, we yes. agree on that? Right. Oh, yeah, 100%. the rear pasterns are more affected, right? And so so the important thing is, is that, you know, and we talk about pasterns, but the rear leg, the strength of the rear leg, that has a huge effect on, you know, the functionality of a goat. And so I've always maintained that you can have a weak pastern as long as you have a strong leg, because the leg is really the functional part of the hind end structure. And so, but to your point is, is that the, when you have those sprung rear pasterns, like I mentioned, it puts a lot of undue stress on the leg. And so it's harder for the leg to maintain its functionality. And you're right, you get straight rear legs, or you get um, kind of rear legs that hock in and tuck under the udder. Um, trying to hold the pastern in some sort of comfortable position. And so, um, you know, recognizing that that style of pastern has a bigger impact on the leg, which is the most important part of the locomotion of the hind end. I agree with that wholeheartedly. So thank you for clarifying that. Um, Let's move on to uh, dairy strength. I mean, arguably one of the most important parts of the scorecard. I mean, you get 20 points from that section alone. Um, Let's hear about that. Yeah. And you know, dairy strength is an interesting one because 
for our tights programs, both linear and shows, you know, we don't ever really get to see how much a goat milks, right? In, at the national show, we sure we milk the best uttered ones out at the side of the ring or whatever. But, you know, 99% of the time, you know, the judge doesn't get to see how much the goat puts into the bucket, right? Right. And so dairy strength is trying to find traits or patterns of things that we can correlate to an animal that produces at a high level. And so dairy strength is really trying to describe the traits that we think correlate to high production. It's not actually describing the productivity of the animal. And it's difficult for me because some of the traits that we talk about in dairy strength, I've seen animals that possess those traits, those traits and don't milk a lot. And I've seen animals that don't possess those traits that milk a whole lot. And so um, it's an interesting one for me in that, you know, take it with a grain of salt. You should be able to look at a goat and say, that's a, that's a productive functional animal, or that's not a productive functional animal. Um, But when we look at dairy strength, you know, the things we look at, we talk about like, um, the angularity and the openness of animals. And when I talk about angularity, the kind of simplest way to think about that is, you know, the wedge of the animal from the side. Do they have a triangular shape as they go um, back to the rear barrel? You want the rear barrel to have more depth than they do at their belly button. You want that increasing depth. And it creates kind of a triangular shape. And then when you stand over the top of the animal, again, the dairy wedge we talked about in the loin and back, but also throughout the whole animal where there's um, more refinement in the front back to more capacity and fullness in the rear. And um, those are like our dairy wedges. And then specifically dairy strength talks about um, ribs, skin, thighs, flank, and there's another one. Rib, skin, oh. thighs, flank. Neck. I don't remember. Oh, neck. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, so each of those traits have been identified as correlating to productivity. And um, they do a lot of the time. And so, you know, talking about like really long you know, nice long neck with some refinement, um, you know, over like a short coarse neck that's really um, full of muscle and meat. Um, You know, we prefer to have a more refined long neck. The ribs, you know, we talk about them wanting to have more openness of rib. Um, For me, more than the openness of rib, because I don't know, I've had goats, I can fit like a fist between their ribs and they're just not very good milkers. And so I think for me, more importantly than how open is the rib, because you always see judges feel feel how open they are, feel how open they are. But it's what is the angle of the rib? Does it want to, and the length of the rib. And so when you feel those ribs, do they point back towards the flank or do they point directly towards the ground? And the last few ribs, do they have the length to extend back to the, um, towards the flank or do they kind of cut off short, you know, right past, you know, the, the juncture of the chine and loin. And so, 
Um, and then thinking about the shape of the rib, is it really round? And when you run your hands over it, it's like going over speed bumps or when you run your hands over it, is it more like um, just flat humps? We call them humps versus speed bumps. And so, you know, I try to focus people more with the ribs on um, instead of how open they are is, you know, where, what directions they point and what shape are they? Those ribs, I think of my own herd and I have a doe who's notorious for sitting like a dog and Mm -hmm particularly when she is pregnant. And part of that is that she's trying to get more air into those lungs. So this might not necessarily have a functionality in terms of her milk production, but it has a functionality in just her everyday life. And then as she gets older, whether or not she really can handle a another gestation, another lactation because of the, you know, the stresses of pregnancy and with those ribs, they are angled more down than they are towards um, that flank. And so there's just not a lot of, and then it kind of does translate to body capacity a little bit as well, but there's just not a lot of area there for when she is carrying those three kids um, to allow her to breathe properly. So maybe, I mean, I know dairy strength, we do relate it to milk production, but there are other aspects of having this goat function that I think apply more to like longevity of life that dairy strength touches on as well. Absolutely. I I totally agree. And, you know, talking about, but even, you know, even going back and correlating what you just said to productivity is, is that if your animal doesn't have the appropriate inside space to accommodate all their organs and all of that stuff, you know, how is their blood flow restricted? Because if you think about making milk, you know, making milk is done through blood flowing, oxygen, all of those things. And so if you don't have the rib cage structure or the dot, you know, the um, thoracic cavity that's appropriate to pump all the blood, um, you know, you're still even, you're probably going to be restricting production, but also like you said, yeah, restricting their, their ability to just manage, to be easily managed over a pregnancy. You know, you don't need your goats hyperventilating at the end of pregnancy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Moving on to body capacity, uh, something that I think a lot of breeders give up on on their animals before they're done maturing Um, let's hear about this portion of the scorecard, which is worth 10 points. Yeah. And body capacity, you know, it really, there's a high correlation between body capacity and dairy strength, in Mm -hmm. my opinion. And, um, you know, you heard me talking about depth to the rear barrel and wedge shape, you know, in dairy strength. Well, that also is body capacity. And so, you know, you want similar things in terms of, of um, body capacity. And, you know, I'm not going to go into immense detail, but the one point about body capacity that I just wanted to talk about is the difference between true body capacity and manufactured body capacity. Yes. And so true body capacity starts with the width and depth of chest and the strength of the head. And it finishes with the width through the thurls and pins and width of the hind end assembly. And um, 
all of the capacity in between that is based on those things. And you can get goats to look big around the barrel just by managing them. But you can't ever change the true proportions of their capacity, both in the chest and in the at the hind end in the pins. And so just realizing that just because an animal is large barreled does not mean that they have true body capacity. And then also realizing that an animal that has a large degree of fleshing is going to appear to have more body capacity than an animal with a more um, lean style of fleshing. And so really looking at the substance of bone in the legs and the width and depth of chest and the strength of the head is going to tell you more than just looking at how big they are around the barrel. Right. And I think that's really important for new people to realize because it talks about, you know, with, you know, everyone says body capacity. Oh, cool. How big's your belly? Right. <laughs> I've got a lot of body capacity, but human body capacity. But in goats, really, like I said, the core points of body capacity are where do you start with the goat and where do you finish with the goat? And and then if you have those things appropriate, then the middle part just comes and it's there. Whereas if you don't have the appropriate starting and finishing points, you know, what you get around the middle is solely based on what you know, what management style they're under. Right. And I love that you put it as manufactured body capacity because it's so <laughs> true. But those animals, those does that you see that are manufactured, uh, you, if you look at if they were praised the year that you're looking at this huge depth, um, a lot of times their dairy strength is maybe a V. You know, they yeah. lose out on that dairy strength and those characteristics because let's face it, they're dairy animals. They're not supposed to be fat. Right. Well, and even it's interesting, you know, people get caught up in just looking at the overall mass of the animal, but there's so many factors that go into the overall mass of the animal. And, mm -hmm. and you really have to peel it back to what is the bone structure telling you? Is the bone structure a strong angular flat bone or is it a weak thin bone or is it a coarse um, round bone. There's so many different types of bone structure, and that is really going to tell you the kind of animal you have, not just, um, you know, like I said, how big around they are or how fleshed they are. Yeah. Everybody thinks bigger is better, but as far as the scorecard goes, I mean, stature is not what people think, think it is. It's not taller. Right. It's not bigger. Uh, right. Fatter is not something that is supposed to be focused in on according to the scorecard. And I feel like a lot of people lose sight in that. Right. Well, and the, and the other thing about conditioning and, you know, obviously you don't want skinny goats and you don't want fat, you know, obviously we'd love to have all goats, you know, perfect, but you know, some management styles are different from other. And I think it's just right. important to recognize that the degrees of fleshing has a really um, high impact on the overall smoothness of an animal. And, you know, we talked about manufactured body capacity. Well, you can also manufacture smoothness of blending. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you have an animal that's milking 18, 20 pounds a day and they, you know, border on the skinnier side, their structure is going to be very evident. All the parts show. And there's no hiding any gaps. Whereas if you have an animal that tends to have a higher degree of fleshing, you know, it, 
you can fill in those crops. You can fill in that point of elbow. You can fill in that rump structure with a, some patchy fat back there. And so people think that conditioned goats are smooth and they talk about smoothness and blending, but you really have to peel back and make sure that you're seeing the actual structure of the animal. And so I think a lot of times um, over-conditioned animals get complimented for their smoothness of blending when it isn't actually their true structure. Yes. Should we go to mammaries really quick? I mean, uh, probably, we probably could do a whole episode on mammaries, but do you want to just touch on mammaries really quickly? Yeah, I will. And I know we're running long and it always happens with me because I- Oh, no, no worries. No, this is great. This is great. So I'm like, oh, shoot, we probably, yeah, we probably need a whole episode just on memories, but let's touch on them. Yeah. And so the one thing that I just want to talk about with memory system is, you know, the structure is very important, but if you read through the scorecard, and like I said, and I think I counted at some point, um, it talks about, let's see, mammary system. Um, in the description, it says capacity, heavy milk production. Under udder support, it talks about shape and capacity. Mm-hmm. For four udder, it talks about capacity. Uh, rear udder, capacious. Uh, balance symmetry and quality, capacity visible. Um, the only... One, it doesn't. Oh, no. Uh, teeth. It does. It does. <laughs> in, in proportion to capacity of the udder. And so I just want to remind everyone and to talk about that structure is very important. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of things, if there are only minor differences, capacity should always win. And it like I just t- what it was it six or seven times in every section it talks about capacity, and so you know I think it's really important to realize that yes you can have a very beautiful structured udder. I have one in my barn right now. It is ideal. It is got a beautiful shape of arch. The medial is right where it needs to be. The teats point straight down. The foreudder is smoothly blended. But it's this tiny little udder, and I don't get hardly any milk out of it every day. And to me, I would rather an animal maybe be not quite as high in the rear udder. You know, obviously, we, we're talking about minor differences. You don't want a sagging rear udder. But if you have the choice over an udder that is three times as capacious, but maybe a quarter of an inch lower in rear udder, you know, it's hard to justify using the smaller udder when the mammary system talks so specifically about capacity and function and functionality and productivity. Um, and so that's my mammary system spiel. I just want to touch on how many points are teats again? <laughs> teats are four points. Oh, and, okay. um, you know, and so I actually, in my type conference at um, convention, one of my one of the participants pushed back, and she said, "Yeah, teats are only four points." She said, "Rear rider is only seven, like they're almost as many points." And so, you know, if you break it down, they are nearly as relevant as many of the other categories. Front end assembly is only five points; it's only one more point than teats. Right. Um, and but I think what you're getting at is is that. Um, you know, we should always remember to evaluate the functionality yes. of the teat 
and not the aesthetic of the teat. And that is not just within teats at all. And, you know, as a wrap up to like talking about just the scorecard is, is that, um, try to, I, I encourage all breeders to try to think about functionality versus aesthetic because, you know, I think that's where we got to with stature and levelness of rump and height of rear rudder. It's very, it's very easy to see. Everyone can see a level top line and everyone can see a really long forerunner and everyone can see a tall goat. Um, and those are aesthetics that are pleasing to the eye, but making sure that we balance that with making sure that that animal also maintains a high level of functionality. Right. And everything works with one another. I mean, the right. whole, everything, everything. So I think balance is key. Um, and once you start kind of teetering into some of the extremes, that's when you see a lot of differences. And, and that's what we're going to touch on to really wrap this up is let's talk about those extremes and how they can benefit, but also work against you and your herd. Yeah. And, you know, I've been this year, I've been really had a lot of self dialogue and thought about breeding for extremes. And um, the more I look at it and the more I evaluate my own animals and look at animals around me, extremes can be fun and exciting. You know, they're extreme, especially when you get an extreme in one trait. But Every time you breed for extremes, you're giving up balance. And when we talk about type and the scorecard, it's really to the, the it's really meant to develop a balanced animal. And so I have decided that I want to discourage breeding for extremes, whether it be um, you know, any one of the traits, whatever extreme it is, I think that if you look at it in like linear terms, like on a linear scale from zero to 50, you know, I don't, we never want zeros and I don't really think we ever want fifties. I really think that, um, a more balanced animal falls somewhere, um, in a more normal range and that creates more balance throughout the whole goat. And so, um, you know, I, I just hope that everyone realizes or can, can appreciate that, you know, extremes are, are fun and exciting and we can, um, and we can appreciate them, but let's not idolize them. That's where I was going. Right. Oh, I love, I love that. It. And so to finish up, we had this great discussion about finding your type and also how to evaluate, but to kind of wrap up, how is breeders really quickly can we apply it? Do you have a trick that you use at home for evaluating your herd to kind of take this information and utilize it? Um, you know, it's, it's hard to, um, you know, it's hard for me to describe because I have an immense bank of knowledge and, you know, I, can utilize the scorecard because I've been around it my whole life and know it, you know, forwards and backwards and upside down. And I've been around a lot of goats. And so when I think about like, how can this scorecard or myself or anybody help a newer person with evaluating their goats at home? And 
my best advice is to um, is to just look at the scorecard and look at the descriptions and the point categories and try to familiarize yourself with them. And then it's really about constantly evaluating your animals. And, you know, I think that's the best advice you can give a new person is instead of, you know, evaluating your animals only, you know, or letting other people evaluate your animals, like going to shows, nothing drives me crazier than when people are like, well, the judge said this and the judge said that, well, what do you think? You're the herd owner, right? Like what's your opinion of your animals? And so, you know, trying to gain as much knowledge as you can by going to shows and by having linear appraisal and doing all those things, but then also, you know, evaluating your own animals and making your own choices and based off of, you know, what, what works for you and what you like to look at. And that's always my take home message is, is that, you know, just taking all shows and performance and awards and wins and everything out of it is, is that you really, I mean, come on, let's be real. The cost of feed these days the amount of time and energy and and money and tears and sweat that we put into these animals, you really have to really like the goats that you're working with. And, you know, whatever that is for you, you know, I hope that everyone uses that as their main tool is that, you know, what do you want to look at in the barn? What makes you happy? What do you want to put your money and energy into? Because there's no sense in putting money, money and energy into something that doesn't make you happy. And just because the scorecard or someone, some judge said, you know, oh, that's not very good. You know, who's, who are they to say it's your goat, your money. (laughs) (laughs) I love having you on this show. Can I just say that? (laughs) It Thanks. is always, always absolute—it's an absolute pleasure. You're just so full of knowledge, and so just—you have such a truthful heart that you don't mind letting out there for everybody to hear, and I love it. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, no worries. And you know, I always just have to, you know, say that just because I have a lot of official capacities, that you know, this is all like my own interpretation of things, and so you know, don't take my word as the word. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Trinity Melmanis of Goats on Dairy Goats, where can people find more about your herd and you? Yeah, you can find me on Facebook, Goats on Dairy Goats, and I do have a website. Um, My life's been insanely busy and my duties um, with goats and then this new thing with ADGA and uh, my life is busy. So nothing's updated because my goats have taken a back burner in terms of their publicity. But you can find me on Facebook. You can find my website, goatson.com. And um, maybe someday I'll get it updated. Well, for those that don't know, Trinity is on the EC and has been working extremely hard with her other EC members to write the ship. And I got to say thank you so much for putting in all the time and effort into this organization, we truly cannot be any more thankful. We know the task that you are up against and your efforts are not unnoticed. Yeah. Thanks. And, you know, um, I hope that, um, I hope that things get better. And I just wanted to say that, and, you know, I, we're, we're doing our best. (laughs) 
keep on trucking and the <laughs> entire community is here for you guys. If just name it and we'll be there. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right, Danielle, we also have our own social medias and stuff like that. Where can people find us? So you can find us on Facebook at Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. We are on Instagram at Ringside underscore go underscore podcast. We are on TikTok and John's really enjoying the ability to post TikTok videos again. So be sure to check them out there. Ringside podcast. Rings my podcast. <laughs> and um, as well, we are, you can find us on the web at dairygoatpodcast.com. Alrighty, folks. Well, we were joined by Trinity Mail Manis again today. Uh, thank you for listening in. I hope you find this knowledgeable. This has been Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. I'm John. And I'm Danielle. We'll catch you on the next one. Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast, is not an affiliate of the American Dairy Goat Association. All opinions or information regarding the ADGA does not represent the registry.